Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Ambreen Khan. This month, the Supreme Court issued a series of controversial decisions that deal with the separation of church and state, including two that deal explicitly with public schools. The perception among many is that religious groups welcome the rulings, the easing of restrictions on prayers and on taxpayer funding. But that was not the case at the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. I spoke with Executive Amanda Tyler from her offices in Washington, D.C., as part of our ongoing series in profiling faith-based leaders. Amanda Tyler, welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I understand you are the executive director of an organization that is all about protecting and upholding the right for people to hold beliefs in our country. Tell me about who you are and what is the BJC. That's right, Umbreen, and I'm delighted to be here with you today. I am executive director of BJC, which stands for Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. And we at BJC are in our 86th year of advocating for and educating about religious freedom for all. We do our advocacy and education work for everyone, for people of all faiths and also for people who don't claim a faith tradition. I appreciate you giving that history, but I have to tell you, for some of our listeners, there might be a little confusion. In the world of the Baptist tradition, where and how do you all fit in? I really appreciate that question. I think just a quick primer on Baptist identity, Baptists as a movement date back to the early 17th century and are incredibly diverse in our modern approach and our modern organization. And that's because core to what it means to be Baptist is a sense of freedom and particularly a sense of soul freedom. This idea that each individual is uniquely able to come before God and that no person, not even a government authority, not even the king in the 17th century parlance, should come between a person and his or her relationship with God. And so that understanding of soul freedom, of congregational freedom, has led to a number of different organizations of Baptists. For the last three decades, the Southern Baptist Convention has not supported BJC's work. In the meantime, we have been supported by 15 other Baptist denominations, and these denominations differ in all kinds of matters, differ in their organization, in their geography, sometimes in their theology. They don't agree on everything. If they did, there wouldn't be 15 different kinds of Baptists, even in our organization. But one thing that they do agree on is the importance of religious freedom for all. From a historical basis, Baptists were dissenters in almost every community that they found themselves a part of all the way through our founding period here and have the experience of being a persecuted minority in, for instance, the American colonies. And so this idea that the government is not our friend, but our foe, that has led to this idea that we want to keep the institutions of religion and government separated. And then also just from an understanding of love of neighbor, that we protect our neighbor's faith freedom as fiercely as we protect our own, that that is how we live out Jesus's commandment to us in the context of religious freedom. 
You know, you just said that that perception of being persecuted by the state is a characteristic or almost part of the kind of the ethos of this history that Baptists have in the United States. Can you give us an example? Sure, absolutely. In the colonial period of the United States, there were established religions in almost all of the colonies, and none of those established religions were Baptists. And so Baptists in that way found themselves to be on the outside, not in power, and they viewed religion and government as being uniquely ill-equipped in matters of religion. And so Baptists were some of the earliest advocates who really petitioned leaders like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in Virginia to include additional protections for religious freedom, first at the state level and then uh, at the federal level as well. And so that understanding, having had experience as a persecuted minority, helped animate and elucidate these values for religious freedom for all. Now, flash forward to our current context, Baptists are not a persecuted minority, but we have that experience that leads us to advocate for those neighbors who are. And so most of our modern day advocacy work are for religious minorities in this country, for those who don't claim a faith tradition, those who are finding themselves in a place that needs protection and needs extra advocacy for their religious freedom rights. This has been a busy month. There is a lot of talk about religious freedom and the relationship between faith and government. Well, you say it's been a busy month. As we have our conversation here today, it's been an absolutely devastating week with news and opinions out of the Supreme Court. It's been devastating, I believe, for the credibility of the court. It's been devastating for the rights of women in this country. And it has been devastating for religious freedom. It started with a decision called Carson v. Macon, a case that came out of the state of Maine that had to do with public funding of religious schools. And this case is really an earthquake for religious freedom because for the first time, the Supreme Court held that if a state provides a public benefit, that it must, not may, but must provide funding for religion. And this is a huge break with longstanding principles of American religious freedom. In the Carson case, the dissenters spoke specifically to that separation of church and state. Do you think they were being hyperbolic? Sadly, I don't think it was hyperbolic at all. The main dissent in the case, which was authored by Justice Breyer, almost no attention to the words in the first clause of the First Amendment, while giving almost exclusive attention to the words in the second. And so this understanding that the First Amendment has dual protections for religious freedom, the no establishment clause and the free exercise clause, this has been a bedrock understanding of religious freedom in this country that we have long called the separation of church and state. That's really just constitutional shorthand for this idea that we protect everyone's religious freedom, both by protecting against its establishment by government and by protecting individuals' rights to freely exercise their religion. We cannot have religious freedom with only one half of those protections. But a majority of this court 
has forgotten that bedrock principle, has abandoned the principle of a strong establishment clause, and that enforcing those establishment clause principles is not at all hostile to religion or religious liberty. It is crucial to protecting religious freedom. As you were just describing it a moment ago, that tension between there be no establishment of religion and the free exercise of religion is equally important to each other, and that this decision is changing that balance. Can you give me an example of how that comes to be such a threat? For someone listening going, come on now, isn't this just being more fair to the religious schools in that community? Well, I think that that principle of fairness is something that the majority talked about, but the idea that you are fair only if you treat things absolutely equally just doesn't apply in the government sponsorship of religion conversation. And that's because we don't treat religion just like anything else. You know, this idea of funding religion is not the same thing as funding a soccer club or funding a debating society. That's because religion is unique. It has a distinct role, a special role, an incredibly superlative role in our society. And it is a special thing that needs to be treated differently. The reason that when we've been in this religious freedom jurisprudence, that we've always looked at them as how do we balance the rights? How do we balance the rights of individuals and the rights of other individuals who don't share that same religion or who don't claim to be religious at all? How do we protect everyone's freedom in this society, not just those who are claiming a free exercise right? But the Supreme Court in these two cases that came out right here at the end of this term have put their thumb on the scale of the side of free exercise and have completely abandoned longstanding establishment clause principles that have protected religious freedom. In Kennedy v. Bremerton, the decision to protect the rights of this coach, talk to us a little bit about what that case was about and What ripple effect that's going to have in public school systems? Coach Kennedy, in this case, is a public school employee, an assistant coach on the varsity football team, and he was asserting a free exercise and a free speech right to engage in prayer immediately after the varsity football game on the 50-yard line at a time and place where everyone in the school was there. Many people were joining in. There are all kinds of photos of the fact that this was a very public prayer practice done while he was on duty as a public school employee. The public school officials in that case rightly read the precedent, understanding that we protect religious freedom by not having government-sponsored prayer in public school. And so they offered him a host of other ways for him to have a prayer practice, even while at work, but in ways that did not send the message that the government was sponsoring or endorsing his prayer practice, and in ways that didn't coerce even implicitly uh, public school students to have to pray with him or engage with him. And he refused all of those alternatives and ended up, after being put on administrative leave from his job, not reapplying 
for his job in bringing this court case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, not once, but twice, by the way. This is the second time that the court has ruled on some, in some way on this particular coach's prayer practice. And in this case, just like in Carson, the court relied exclusively on the free exercise half of the religious freedom rights and protections here, free exercise plus free speech, and ignored establishment cause principles. And in doing so, they elevated their concern about Coach Kennedy's religious freedom rights over the religious freedom rights of everyone else in that community, including these public school students and their families who have a right to send their children to public school without worrying that an official at that public school is going to interfere with the choices they have made about how to provide religious instruction and whether to provide religious instruction. Justice Sotomayor wrote this dissent in this case, pointed out that we have always had different rules when it comes to protecting religious freedom in the public school context. And that's because public school school students are, one, required to attend school. We have compulsory education. And also that we have long recognized that those students are particularly vulnerable and deserving of protection. Amanda, did you or your organization have a reaction to the court's decision to overturn another longstanding precedent, Roe v. Wade? Well, our primary public reaction was on Twitter on a, in a thread that I put out on Friday. And in that tweet, I reflected both personally, because as a woman, I can't take you know, my identity out of my reaction to this decision. But I reacted as a woman, as American, and as a Christian and found the opinion in the Dobbs case completely devastating and very concerning about what the future might hold for the health of women, for our individual rights and liberties, and for equality under the law. And the court, in tearing away this precedent, in throwing this incredibly volatile and debated issue back to the states has really opened us up to even more political discord and political discord, particularly about religion, because we know that a number of states will be pursuing anti-abortion laws, total bans on abortion, and they'll be doing so with an explicitly religious agenda. And from a religious freedom perspective, We know that religion does not speak with one voice on abortion rights. There is not one position that all religious people have about abortion. And we fear that one religious perspective is going to take root over all others and be the reason that many of these abortion bans are passed in states without that protection of a fundamental right. We are going to have a lot more discord, a lot more debate about this issue, and in ways that I fear are not going to be good for religious freedom. The rulings that we've been discussing have many concerned about the court's support in favor for a certain interpretation of religious liberty and have many others, especially in the faith community, raising alarms about the rising influence of what is described as Christian nationalism. How do you see it? Well, I am incredibly concerned about Christian nationalism. 
it suggests that to be a quote unquote true American, one has to be a Christian. And the problem with this ideology, of course, is it completely conflicts with our understanding of religious freedom for all. I have called Christian nationalism the greatest threat to religious freedom for all that our country faces today. And it is a threat not only on the grand scale in ways that we saw on January 6th, uh, Christian nationalism as an ideology helped drive and intensify the attack on the Capitol and on democracy itself. It's a threat to Christianity itself. And I think that we as a people need to be particularly on guard and ready to have the tough conversations to work to dismantle Christian nationalism. The past week shows that we cannot rely on the United States Supreme Court to protect our rights. And so it is going to be up to every American to stand up for these values of religious freedom for all, even if the Supreme Court will not. How do you respond to Baptists who disagree with you, who don't see this as a threat, but a return to what they believe to be the origin story of the United States? One of the myths that Christian nationalism relies so heavily on is that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. It's this whole narrative of a founding story that directly conflicts not only with history, but with the founding documents themselves. They said that our belonging in society would not at all be predicated on what we believe or how we worship or how we identify religiously. So I would try to have a conversation of reason with them on that ground. But as a Christian, I have deep concerns about what Christian nationalism leads us to do with our faith that it leads us into a place of idolatry, of worshiping country or political party above God. And that when we replace the American flag with the cross, then we lose our ability to speak truth to power. We lose our ability to be independent and to stay true to our religious convictions. I think we have lost touch in many places with truth itself. And this idea, and we're seeing it coming out in the hearings, but this idea that such a large percentage of the American public continues to believe the lie that the election was stolen just points to this idea that truth itself has become up for grabs. And when we lose touch with that, it becomes incredibly difficult for us to come together as a country. We are always going to have a diversity of opinions in this country. I think that's part of what makes our country great. So we are not looking for unanimity. But if we lose touch with truth and that as a value of how we engage in our society, then we might go beyond what we can repair. Amanda Tyler is the executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. You can find details and a link to her bio in this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. As Tyler noted at the beginning of our conversation, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty does not represent the Southern Baptist Convention. The convention has its own arm to lobby and do issue advocacy, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. In contrast to the Baptist Joint Committee, this week, the ERLC Interim Executive Director, Brent Leatherwood, celebrated several of the court's decisions in a statement. Brent Leatherwood, like Amanda Tyler, begins 
by professing the deeply personal nature of Baptist faith and its influence. Faith is deeply personal to so many Americans and Christians. We believe uh, that it rightly shapes every aspect of our lives. We live out our faith in any number of ways, both privately and publicly. But his organization takes a very different view when it comes to Coach Kennedy praying at the 50-yard line. This case with Coach Kennedy, it's centered on the latter. And we believe at the RLC that the Supreme Court rightly determined that an individual employed by a school does not forfeit his or her constitutional right to free expression simply by entering the schoolhouse gate or, as it were in this case, the field of play. While the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty sees the decision as an imbalance favoring exercise over the prohibition of establishment, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission does not. If it were not already clear enough, this court views religious liberty as a bedrock right in our free republic. The question that many have raised is, will the religious liberty and free exercise rights being protected extend to all people of faith and conscience, including those who do not affiliate or identify with a religious tradition? That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy, Richa Carmacore, and myself. The interview with Frank Lampert was produced by Laura Correll and Maureen Fiedler. We want to welcome the radio stations Hawaii Public Radio 1 and Radio IQ in Virginia. Welcome to the Inspired Family. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.